0: Hello and welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW in San Francisco.
1: Continuing conversations that began over a bottle of wine at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford
0: campus. A bottle of wine because today our topic is the philosophy of wine.
1: All right, Ken, come clean. I know that both you and I like a fine bottle of wine, or even a bottle of not-so-fine wine in my case, and we have lots of philosopher friends who like to drink wine, and a fair number of whom love to bloviate about it. But really, is there anything philosophical about wine?
0: Well, lots of great philosophers have made wine a part of their philosophical conversation. Socrates and Plato in the Symposium, Hume and Kant all both extol the virtues of wine. I mean, what more can you ask for?
1: Well, how about... Something philosophically interesting? I know what the problem of free will is. I know what the problem of skepticism. I know what the problem of personal identity is. I have no clue what the problem of wine is. The fact that philosophers like wine doesn't make it a
0: philosophical problem. Well, there really isn't a problem of wine, John. I mean, it's just wine is a pleasant way of uh, bringing into philosophical discussion issues that apply beyond wine.
1: Well, you mean, uh, uh, like, such as? I mean, what are you talking about? There are
0: lots of them. For example, there's the whole issue of secondary qualities. It's like the color of an apple or the sound of a trumpet or the smell of a rose. The taste of wine seems to have this kind of peculiar status. Is the taste in the wine, or is it merely in the mind of the drinker of the wine? You mean
1: if a bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 2004 falls off a truck in the forest and there's no one around to taste it? Is it still oaky, burned, and velvety, with a long, sophisticated finish?
0: you got the idea. Barclay might have sold a lot more books if he had put the, his issue that way. But then there's the whole idea of j- the judgments of taste and quality. Are those objective matters of fact, or subjective issues of mere preference? I mean, if you'd rather have a two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's instead of a 2004 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, is there something wrong about that?
1: Well, that's a good point, but there really seems to be two questions there. First... If you say a wine is oaky, velvety, and has a great finish, and I say the same wine is fruity, corduroyish, and somewhat flatulent, is one of us right and the other wrong? In other words, do these items of a wine connoisseur's vocabulary really correspond to objective properties of the wine, say its chemical properties? The second question is a bit different. If we agree on all these, Things, if they're somehow objective, or at least we agree on them, does it follow that we must agree on how good the wine is? I,
0: I, I like your distinction, I, I really do, between those two kinds of questions. But I, I never heard of corduroyish and flatulent applied to wine. Well, I made those up, but they do seem to describe some wines I've tasted. Well, I'm, I feel sorry for you then. Then there's an well, um, then there's another issue we ought to address, discuss. It's the it's the whole issue of properties of the wine that aren't taste properties. Can they affect the real value of a wine? Well, what are you driving at there? Well, Ken? consider that two thousand four Chateau Lafitte Rothschild you were talking about. It not only tastes great; it's not couturierish, but it's a great. There's a great story behind it. It's a famous brand from a great wine making region from from the grapes that have been cultivated for ages, planted in that soil that has produced great wines for for even longer. There's a whole family heritage be, behind it. That's that's good stuff.
1: Well, I'm sure that's all true, and, and, and it was probably aged for a couple years before it was put on the market, which is expensive. All that explains why it costs $479 a bottle.
0: But should that be relevant? I mean, if some lab at Stanford could make a chemically indiscernible wine by fiddling with the molecules of a bottle of two-buck chuck, wouldn't it taste exactly the same? And isn't that all that really should matter, the taste?
1: Well, suppose some lab at Stanford could make a molecule-for-molecule
0: duplicate of the Mona Lisa. Would that molecule-for-molecule duplicate be priceless? Well, it looks like we have a lot to talk about, John, and we're lucky to have Barry Smith from the University of London, a real expert on both wine and on the philosophy of wine, to help us out.
1: The first issue we'll tackle is, where is the taste of wine? Is it in the wine or in the drinker of the wine?
0: Then we'll have to move on to consider the whole matter of taste. People take lessons on wine appreciation. What are they learning? Are they learning to appreciate the value of experiences they're already having, or are they learning to have new experiences? Then we'll consider the larger value of
1: wine. Is a wine connoisseur better off than someone who's every bit as happy with a glass of two-buck Chuck or even Ripple? And in this connection, we'll consider Ken's thought experiment. Is the wine produced in a Stanford lab really as good as the 479 bottle of 2004 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild if the two are chemically the same? Or does all that history and culture really count for something?
0: First, though, our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, visits one of those wine appreciation classes to see what folks might find philosophical about wine. She files this report.
2: As San Francisco's waterfront glows with the setting sun, 12 well-heeled guests are preparing for an evening of fine wine and food at the South Beach Yacht Club. I'm Cynthia Blaybaum,
3: I'm a chef and a wine teacher. Uh, What we're doing tonight is having a wine tasting and palate identification class, where we'll taste different things and compare them to other flavors to see if we can figure out what they taste like.
2: As she cooks, Blaybom douses the food liberally with Riesling wine from an open bottle on her stainless steel workbench.
3: Right now I'm searing pork tenderloin to be served with an apple cider sauce and little potato pancakes and wasabi cream Uh, and it's all to go
2: with um, medium bodied white wines that are full of flavor and fruit. But before they get to the meal, guests will taste a variety of Rieslings, along with a plate of tasting aids, everything from fresh mango with guava syrup to crushed juniper berries.
3: So we should be able to look at all four Rieslings and try to identify them, guess which, where they're from, but also really focus on just the, there's no other external clues. It's just what do you taste and what makes you think this wine is where it's
2: from. In the dining room, rows of long-stemmed glasses crowd the tables. Four bottles of wine have been disguised in identical brown paper bags.
3: The first thing you do is you uh, look at the wine, you swirl it, so that, that aerates it, that gives it a little life. Then you smell it. It could smell like gasoline, but that's a good thing and people like that. And then you taste them and you say, you know, I and what I like people to do is just shout out things like, oh, I, I taste wisteria blossoms in my grandmother's yard after the rains in Illinois. Um, because the best way to remember a wine is to think about some other experience you've had and tie that in with your brain and think, well, this wine smells like something else that I've tasted before. So here's a whole vocabula- Riesling vocabulary for you if you're stumped pear, apple pear, apples, You know, peach, white peach, apricot, nectarine, jasmine, rose, orchid, honey, petrel, rubber band, mineral, stone, chalk, mint, juniper, lime, orange and orange zest, grapefruit, green plums, lychee, guava, mango, pineapple, almond, ginger, bergamot, cut green grass, and white pepper.
2: After a good 15 minutes of tasting, the wines are unveiled.
3: Okay, so wine A is it's the German one! Oh. oh man, I am so
2: wrong. No one correctly identified all the Rieslings. Opinions differed over which was which. I think that every person's got their own
3: palate, and I would never judge anybody for not liking the same thing I do.
2: Blabom sees wine tasting as a combination of scientific fact and individual perception. The grapes have the inherent chemistry in themselves. So there are characteristics
3: that you look for in a wine because. That's how, again, God or whoever you believe in made them, that the juice from this grape should taste like this. Again, we put terms on it, we say, you know, vanilla-y because that's something we can relate to.
2: But she admits sometimes wine connoisseurs can get a little carried away.
3: One of my favorite wine descriptions that I ever heard was a wet fox, and I didn't know how many people have been close enough to a wet fox to know what that smells like in the first
2: place. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli.
0: Cheers. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.